Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. The biggest story in the NFL right now is the same story that has dominated the entire offseason. The same story that Melvin Gordon was in here summing up for us with the perfect take months ago. Alvin, once again, and hopefully for the very last time, hit it. It's just so tough for running backs right now, man. You have a lot of running backs that's out there. and We just we just don't get no love. It's literally the worst position to play in the NFL right now. You know, it literally sucks. Literally. You know what people say? God, everything is literally, literally. But he's right. It does literally suck. And the take has been literally beaten into the ground. Why are you starting a show with that again, Rome? Well, because it's still going on. I mean, it is the take of the offseason, but it's also nothing new. And it has been beaten into the ground in the last two months, which is why I can't believe we're still doing this. But we are because, because Jonathan Taylor. Look, we all know running backs have no leverage. They're just not getting paid. Trade requests are being ignored. Nobody in the league values them as highly as they value themselves right now. Now, And that's just the reality, and it does suck. Literally. Just ask Saquon Barkley. Just ask Josh Jacobs. Just ask Zeke Elliott. Just ask Austin Eckler. Or any of the dudes on that running back Zoom crisis call that they had to make to try to figure out what the hell they were going to do about any of this. Spoiler alert, there is nothing any of them can do about any of this. Which brings us to Jonathan Taylor. The running back market is no different for him than for any of the others. Even if he is a really, really good player. And I want to make that so clear. I am such an enormous fan of this guy of him as a player, of him as a teammate, of him as his attitude, his mind, his talent, his work ethic, his intangibles. I love this guy. And he's only 24. And he's only one year removed from leading the league in rushing TDs and touchdowns. I mean, this dude has got so much good football left in him. I don't think anybody doubts that. However, he is still currently on the pup list. He's still coming back from ankle surgery, and yes, he is coming off for him a disappointing season. And worst of all, you know what he has working against him? The one thing working against Jonathan? He's a running back. And, well, being a running back literally sucks right now. Literally the worst position to play at NFL right now. You know, it literally sucks. Literally. I mean, it seems incredibly unlikely to me that this trade request, his... It's going to go any differently for him than it did for Saquon or Austin Eckler or any request any running back has made this summer. Again, these are great players, maybe even difference makers, but clearly teams do not see it that way. Clearly teams think that they are replaceable, they are dispensable, and they do not value them the way they value themselves. Now, if there is one difference here, and I'm not sure there is, But if there is one difference here, we are talking about the Jim Ursay component. Jim Ursay is still at the controls. So really anything can happen. I mean, for real though, is Chris Ballard still employed by the Colts? 
Is that dude still the GM? Does he still bother to show up for work? Does he still have an office? Because it's pretty clear, now more than ever, that this is Jim Ursay's team. Jim Ursay is the real GM here, and he's about as good at it as the old man, Jera. Ursay has arguably dethroned Jera as the owner, CEO, and president of Team Content. I mean, how long before Netflix comes to Jim Ursay and says, here's 55 mil for a 10-episode doc with the real content king, Jim Ursay? I mean, isn't he the next Jera? You know, extremely involved to the point of being over-involved in over his head? I mean, case in point, the pancake flipper pulling that hot-taking, talking head out of a Bristol TV studio in the middle of a regular season to coach the team. Who could come up with an idea like that other than Ursay? Obviously, it was him, because no other brain in the world could possibly have conceived of something like that. And that was one of the worst ideas, not only in football, but in recorded human history. I'm sure there's never been an idea quite like that one. You find me another owner who has come up with something like that. Not even Ursay's idea to try to cover Pink Floyd was that bad. Hello, hello. Is there anybody in there? Just not if you can hear me. And you got to feel awfully good about yourself to pull that off. Like, that's my whole thing about Ursay. Like, it sounds like I'm going in, and it sounds like I'm killing the guy, but I love the guy. I love the guy for all of this, including him pulling that hot-taking pancake flipper out of Bristol and saying that he was a coach and comparing him to Don Shula. As absolutely ludicrous as that is. And you know the decision to grab Anthony Richardson with the fourth overall pick was all his idea as well because that dude could not wait to spin around a cell phone camera on himself and brag about that pick about 30 seconds after he made it from the war room on draft night. Okay, Colts Nation, here we are in the war room. 2023 draft. Half a million people in Kansas City going crazy. But it was high drama. Picks shifting, obviously, at two and three. And... Uh, it was very exciting because we were hoping to get Anthony Richardson. He was our targeted man, and um, we were thankful that he was there for. I mean, legend, legend. Like, we're going live right now. Like, this guy's directing it. He's producing it. Never mind the social media team. This, like, guy's like, give me my phone. We're going live right now to Colts Nation. I mean, it's his team. He can ignore the football people that he hired to do football things. He can do whatever the hell he wants. It's his right. It's his team. Even if he got, he inherited it from daddy. It's still his team. It's his right, which apparently is why he is running point on the PR against Jonathan Taylor, even if it's completely unnecessary for the owner to even comment at all about that. But then again, we're talking about a guy who's got to comment about everything. I mean, where do we even start here? How about starting with the running back situation in general? Remember, this is what he tweeted about the running backs overall. Jim Mersey, quote, NFL running back situation. We have negotiated a CBA that took years of effort and hard work and compromise in good faith by both sides. To say now 
that a specific player category wants another negotiation after the fact is inappropriate. Some agents are selling, quote, bad faith. I mean, he didn't have to do that. All it did was piss off his star running back who is entering the final year of a rookie deal and who sees the writing on the wall or the writing his owner put out on the X. Essentially spelling out that he's going to get screwed like everybody else when the contract ends, the play's running back. Ursay stepped on the rake himself and definitely didn't have to stomp on another one in response to Taylor's initial trade request, but of course he did. How about this? If you already thought that Jonathan Taylor was not happy with the way he was being treated, how do you think he felt after hearing this? Quote, if I die tonight and Jonathan Taylor is out of the league, no one's going to miss us. The league goes on. We know that. The National Football League rolls on. It doesn't matter who comes and who goes, and it's a privilege to be a part of it. End of quote. You imagine being an employee and hearing that from your boss. Hey, hey, shock. Hey, Alvi. I got something to drop on YouTube, boys. Let me tell you something, man. If I were to drop dead right now in the middle of this segment and the two of you would be off this show, they'd forget about me in 30 minutes and they'd forget about the two of you in one second. Just know that. It's a damn privilege to sit on the other side of the glass of me. You got that, son? Sons? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know, Jim. That's what every boss would say about their star-valued employees, right? If you were gone tomorrow, nobody would miss you at all. And remember, this is all after Ursa and Taylor met face-to-face, a meeting which obviously went horribly, or the guy would not have been demanding a trade right after. A meeting that was clearly not with Chris Ballard or Shane Steichen or any of the actual football people that he hired to run and make football decisions. And then finally... He followed up that bizarre death comment with this one. Quote, we're not trading Jonathan. End of discussion. Not now, not in October. End of quote. Again, he didn't have to say any of those things, yet he said all of those things. Which brings me to one last point, which makes it all hilarious. The same dude who will not negotiate because running backs have no market and no leverage The same dude who said, we will not trade him. So he cuts down any value he might have, which he doesn't have. Then he goes out there and apparently they're demanding a first round pick for Jonathan Taylor, a guy that he said that he would not trade. I mean, Hersey, he knows running backs are screwed. He knows there is no real market. And he knows he doesn't want to trade the dude. So let's just throw out there a price that we know we're not going to get. And then the running back will come crawling back to the team like all the other ones. Then again, we are talking about Jim Irsay here. The dude who knows nothing about making sausage but claims to know how to build a football team. The dude who compared Jeff Saturday to Don Shula. The dude who told us his team was in the top quartile of the upper quartile of winners. And even though that's not true, anything can happen. And will happen when it comes to my man, Jim Ursay, a.k.a. the owner, CEO, and team president of Team Content, as well as the shadow GM of the Colts. Anything can happen. Well, except for a running back getting paid. I'll tell you what's amazing. Like, I'm an animal guy, right? 
So I do want to pass along my condolences to Lolita, nicknamed Toki, the orca that Ursay tried to save last week. Man, so many different layers to this guy, right? If you don't know, he wanted to move the orca from captivity to a sea sanctuary. I see you working. Maybe we need to move Saquon, JT, Jacobs, Eckler to a running back sanctuary. See what I did there? Man, quite a week for Ursay. But then again, if you're a billionaire, can you really have a rough week? Fellow billionaire Josh Harris, on the other hand, might disagree. I have a question. Does a handshake make a sound? Clearly it does if it's an unintended, awkward handshake that is not executed properly from an NFL team owner with Joe Buck. Okay, Cole. You know, it's preseason, but we'd still like to win. Yeah, I mean, you're no, no stranger. Injuries, but... You're no stranger to uh, professional sports teams, managing general partner of the Devils, of the Sixers. Thought I had a nice piece of video for you. I did not. You can find it. That is some kind of handshake. Such a good handshake that that might have been the best moment in the NFL preseason ever. Troy Aikman's reaction to said handshake was second, and it was close. There it is. If you're on CBS Sports Network, that, that handshake did not go very well. That was awkward. That was awkward. We've talked about handshake guy and how many different versions there are of handshake guy. You know, that one office that has that one guy that has to shake your hand every single day like you're meeting him for the first time when you've actually worked with him for 10 years. Yo, bro, you don't need to shake. You don't need to dap me up every single day. I've seen you every day for 10 years. We're not just meeting. I don't need the dead fish. I don't need the Adrian Peterson handshake. Joe Buck just being a TV pro, using some hand gestures, and then all of a sudden locked in some weird, awkward handshake with a billionaire. Josh Harris may be a billionaire, but he clearly at this point is does not know what to do with his hands guy. Put it in my pocket, cross him, force an awkward handshake with Joe Buck. Awkward. Crazy. But then again, that was one of the highlights of the preseason. Clones, what do you want when you're craving protein or you need more energy? Not bars, not sugary snacks, not energy drinks. You want beef, pure and simple. Where's the beef? It's in a package of Old Trapper Beef Jerky. Old Trapper is not your old man's jerky. Shriveled, dry, tasteless. Old Trapper Beef Jerky is made from lean strips of steak and quality spices that are smoked over a real wood fire. It's tender, it's tasty, it's not tough. And why is it so good? Because Old Trapper is a 50-year-old family business known for its relentless commitment to quality. They take smoked beef extremely seriously and you can taste it in every single bite. Old Trapper is packed with protein. It comes in four amazing flavors to satisfy all your cravings. 
quality smoked meat at its finest. It goes with you wherever you go, to the game, to the gym, to the beach. So look for Old Trapper in the Clearview bag. You can see the quality you're buying. Look for it in major retail stores near you. Clones, if you do not see it, ask for it by name because no other jerky compares Old Trapper or Witcher Beef. Hey, Jim, man, it's beautiful to hear your voice, brother. My man, Mike, it is beautiful to hear your voice. How you doing? How you feeling? Uh, everything's beautiful, man. Just, uh, I can't believe I'm going to this next stage. Tell me about the next stage. What's the next hey. stage for you? What's it feel like? Hey, just um, the sky's the limit, man. I'm, I'm training um, Francis. I'm going to enter the um, Birmingham Roller World Cup competition with my birds. Hey, man, I'm just happy. My cannabis company's number one in the world. I, and I, I got my boxing equipment coming out. I'm just ecstatic, man. Mike Tyson joining us. You know, Mike, I've got this podcast called The Reinvention Project, and my thing has been, like, you and I are both in our 50s. I'm trying to figure out if it's possible for us to live our best lives now as opposed to having our best life behind us. Do you feel like the best, like this is the best version of you right now? Well, at this moment, yes, because I'm I'm more conscious and cognizant of my situations now, and I just have a family atmosphere in my life. Is just, I, I'm, if you didn't know who I was from the past, you wouldn't know who I am. I'd be a different person. I love that. Mike Tyson joining us. All right, Mike, talk to me for a minute about Francis. How did, how did this come to be? Like, you're going to get him ready to fight Tyson Fury. How did the partnership come together, and why is that something you want to take on? Well, you know, his team reached out to me. I was interested in doing it. And we went through a few sessions, and it was very successful. I think he had the aptitude to be a professional fighter. He had the experience from fighting in the air as a UFC champion. And I always said one day, maybe it's not, that the heavyweight champion of boxing will be the heavyweight champion of UFC. He, he will unify both titles. That's going to happen one day. Talking to Mike Tyson. So, Mike, yesterday you posted a cool-looking video on social media with highlights of the masterclass training that you've been putting Francis through in order to get him ready. What have been some of your biggest takeaways from the time that you have spent with him in the gym? That he he's willing to do it. He's putting he's putting in all the work. He's working hard. I'm working him pretty hard, and he's, I know he's sore because. The first time I worked out with him, and then the next day I saw him, I asked him, was he sore? He said no, and that was a big mistake. So we, he's been going through heavy, heavy artillery training. He's ready. We're talking to Mike Tyson. So Mike Francis is a pretty big dude now, but Fury, man, this cat is enormous. Like 6'9", weighed in at 268 for his last fight in December. From what you've seen in your work with Francis, do you think that he can handle Fury's punching power? Absolutely, because, you know, um, Tyson Fury, he got dropped by a small guy. I forgot his name, Covington. I forgot his name that dropped for his early in his career. And listen, this guy punches like, man, God knows who, man. He's fast. He, he moves quicker. I worked with his speed. And listen, man, he only has to land one or two. Listen, if, if Tyson's he... never Tyson's never been in the ring with a guy that could punch this hard. You don't think? No, I think this guy punched harder than anybody ever fought. Let me ask you this. Like, you've got a profound appreciation for the tactical and the technical elements of the sport. Going back to your time of watching film of the all-time greats with Customato when you were young, like strategically, other than Francis hitting him in the face, what does he need to do to win this fight? 
Oh, he just needs to go all out aggression, punch into the body, bring it to the head as we've been working with. He's moving his head. He's getting it together, and he's really determined to do this stuff. He really wants to do this for his country, his people, his uh, whole patriotic pride. This is really interesting. I, I'm very ecstatic about doing this, like we said before. We're talking to Mike Tyson, who's helping Francis Ngannou. He, Mike, if he pulls this off, how big of an upset would that be? That would be the, that would be a bigger upset than um, Douglas Tyson. Would it? Yeah. Boy, that, that, that was something else, Mike. That night was just so, everything about that was so strange. As you think back on that night, what do you remember? Um, I remember I took a good ass whooping. <laughs> oh, man. You're the best, Mike. That's great. I mean, you got to tip your hat sometimes, right? Anything can happen in the ring. You got to, sometimes Anything you just have to happen, tip your hat. But when it happens bad, you overcome it. And Mike, you know what? Explain this to me as a prize fighter. You know, some guys, like when they get knocked out for the first time, man, they're never the same because something breaks, right? Something snaps. They're never the same. How about you? What kind of an effect did that have on you? Because nobody ever expected that to happen, yourself included, right? Or did you maybe yes, know? Sir. Yes, I absolutely. But you know what? I've studied the great fighters before me, and they've gotten their ass kicked a lot worse than I did, and they came back to become champion again. So I never was discouraged. I know I would be champ again. Mike Tyson is joining us. So, Mike, let me ask you something. It's another crossover event, right? It's a thing that's getting more and more popular. So as a boxing Hall of Famer and icon, what do you make of the current state of the sport overall? Do you like what you see? Absolutely. Especially since the MMA guys started getting involved. Because they're bringing a different clientele to the boxing arena and boxing so desperately needs it. So you take a guy like um what's his name again? Crawford and um Spence, right? Yeah yeah. Jake Jake Paul outsell those guys. He's not a world class well he is now, but he didn't start off as a world class fighter. He started off as a joke. And he brought what, seventy million people to this fight? Listen, he's a boxing promoter's dream. All right, so what you just said is so interesting that you're talking Spence and Crawford, two of the best fighters in the world, and now we're talking about a YouTuber who is bringing more eyeballs to it than some of the best of the best. I was about to ask you, Mike, is Jake Paul good or bad for the sport of boxing? But you just answered it, right? You think he's really good for the sport. Well, he's a better boxer now. And you know, listen, yeah, yeah. Know what makes know what know what um, certified helping boxing, and when you bring finance to boxing, when you bring notoriety to boxing, and that is what he's doing. He's bringing more people's eyes to the sport of boxing, and that's helping the sport. Hey, Mike, let me ask you this about him. He, he's definitely improving. Like, he's improving. He's gotten much better as a fighter. When you look at him as a boxer, as a Hall of Famer, do you see a guy who's a boxer, or do you see an entertainer, or do you see a content provider? Like, what do you think when you see him? I see every all three of them. You said something also about him recently that I thought was interesting. You said he's got the light. He's touched. He's got the light. What do you mean by that? He's got the light. Hey, he, it's his day. That means it's his day and nothing can stop him. So, Mike, as I mentioned at the very top, you're involved in a lot of things. You talked about some of the things that you're involved in. In addition to this fight in Saudi Arabia coming up on the 28th, what are the things outside the fight game that interest you the most right now? 
Well, listen, we got to remember we got when we're going to the fight, it's going to be Riyadh season, and that's going to be the biggest time of the year over there. So um, big up to Riyadh season. Hey, Mike, explain what that is. For those who do not know, what is Riyadh, Riyadh season, and how big is that? Well, that's the biggest time of the year there. And it's like, um, man, what I was explaining is that it's something that I could never imagine. It's just so beautiful. All right, so, Mike, leave me with this thought. How do you think that fight is going to play out? Is it going to play out with somebody lying on their back, or do you think it's going to be a no long doubt fight? about that. And there's no doubt about that. And don't be surprised if Tyson takes the mat either. Mike Tyson joining us again. This fight, Francis Ngannou and Tyson Fury, it's for the baddest man on the planet. It's October 28th. It's in Saudi Arabia. It's on pay-per-view. I'm Mike Tyson, my guest. Mike, it is great to get caught up with you. Great to hear your voice. I appreciate you, man. Great to have you back. Thank you, brother love. Thank you, brother love. Discover credit cards do something pretty awesome. At the end of your first year, they automatically double all the cash back you've earned. That's right. Everything you have earned doubled. All the cash back from eating at your favorite restaurant doubled. All the cash back from that trip where you sort of learned to snowboard also doubled. And the best part, you don't have to do anything ridiculous to get it. Discover does it automatically. Seriously, though. See terms and check it out for yourself at discover.com slash match. All right, so let me just say this. Yes, I did take two days off after taking an entire month off for the summer. Now, the month in the summer is typical for me. I do this every single summer. The two days after the month, however, is atypical. But if you were following any of my social media or you listened to the program last week, you know that Dodger Jano and I went to Boulder, Colorado to move Rogan Loam into Rogan his Lohm. dorm at the University of Colorado. He is now officially a buff, and we are now officially empty nesters. How the hell did that happen? I mean, I have no idea. I'm telling you, if you are not intentional and you're not consistently where your feet are, you're going to look up and suddenly you will have 15 years unaccounted for. Even if you work really hard. No, especially if you work really hard, which is why it's so important to work really hard, but work really smart. I'm not even here to lecture. I'm just here to preach. I'm here to preach. Other than health, time is pretty much the most important thing there is. So you better monitor both with extreme vigilance. One day you're bringing them home from the hospital. The next day you're dropping them off at their dorm. I'm not even kidding. So a couple of thoughts about Boulder and the weekend and the move-in. So we move Logan's older brother, Jake, into the dorms at the University of Wisconsin four years ago. And then we built that house in the North Woods, Wisconsin, where we've been summering. Not surprisingly, these are two really different places, Wisconsin and Denver, the Northwoods and Boulder. You want to know the biggest difference between the Northwoods and Boulder? I think I can address the biggest difference between the two areas with a single metric, a single bit of analytics. You know what that metric is? You know what the analytics are on that? The biggest single difference between Eagle River and Boulder. Blubber. 
Yeah, I know. Shock of all shocks. Eagle River is fat. And Boulder is shredded. No judgment either way. I'm not body shaming anybody. It's just an acknowledgement. (laughs) It's just an observation. As far as I can tell, there's a lot more movement in Boulder than there is Eagle River. Wisco fam, don't get bent. You know I love you. You know I love our summers there. Love them, love you, period, full stop. Boulder is incredible. Boulder is an amazing town. Rarely does anything live up to the hype, but Boulder absolutely did and more. What an amazing town. Yeah, I know. Here we go, Boulder Jim. Listen, I would not be raving if I didn't believe it. I'm not saying it because my kid and my money are going there. Like, the town is that awesome. So, while we were there, I got some quality time with the Rogues. You know, dad's son time that I wasn't getting before because he's running around. You know, it's, he's getting ready to go to, away to college. He's hanging out with all his boys. He's running around. He was in the jungle in Medellin. So, we get to Boulder And when DJ is not around, he starts to fill me in on some of what went down in Columbia. And then upon arriving in Boulder, I'm looking around. And after hearing his stories, I said, Rogues, let me tell you something. This is a Rocky Mountain Medellin. It's a Rocky Mountain Medellin. So take everything that I told you prior to going into the jungle of Medellin and apply it to the mountains of Boulder. It's a rocky mountain Medellin. Like I mentioned, I was texting or messaging with a really prominent member of the media, who you all know. And we were talking about sending... Okay, this is a different story now. All right, this is a different story. I'm texting with another person, and you all know this guy, and I'm going to protect his identity. He comes on this show. We're friends. You all know him. And he saw my posts and congratulated me about us sending our youngest off to college. And we were talking about what it's like and the kids going away. And this guy texted me the funniest thing. And it's so true. He said, quote, we, meaning him, me, people our age, we, quote, we spent our college years Dreaming of doing exactly what we're doing now. And now we're dreaming of doing that again, namely college. I said, dude, you nailed it. Exactly. I'm walking around Boulder, looking around, looking around, looking around. I'm like, dang, dude. Wouldn't this be fun? When when I was that age, all I could think about was, man, wouldn't it be great to be sitting in a beautiful fake brick studio with a big white desk and cameras? Now I'm thinking about, man, wouldn't it be great to be tripping around Boulder with real brick buildings? All right, so that, I thought that guy nailed it. And that, by the way, that guy is doing what he's doing at a higher level than what I'm doing. So I thought he nailed it. In terms of move-in, the actual physical move-in, have you done this? Have you moved your kid into the dorm? You can all relate. Moving in Boulder, though, in contrast to moving in at Wisconsin was what Rogues likes to call, quote, light work. That's his thing now for everything. Light work, Pops. Light work. Light work, Pops. Hey, Logs, help me out with this. You got it. Light work, Pops. Which is better than, quote, no work. 
one of the things that we used to knock heads over. Anyway, back to the moving. It seemed like Wisconsin had what felt like millions of people in lines snaking around blocks and blocks and blocks and super long elevator waits. Boulder was ridiculously easy. No waiting, no stress. Moving at Boulder was really was, quote, light work. So, DJ, Rogues, and I had an incredible final weekend together before the move-in, and we took in every single moment. Moment, I should say. So, I have to admit, Rogues moving in hit a little different than Jake moving in. Because you knew you still had one at school, right? Or one at home. So, I found myself waking up yesterday after he spent his first night in the dorms wondering, man, I wonder how the kids slept. I wonder how the kids slept without a fan. Because in that little oven we moved him into, it's like 115 degrees. It was hot in Boulder. I wonder what he's going to do this morning. Like, I didn't think about any of this stuff with Jake. Like, Jake was, like, shot out of a cannon. But I'm like, Logan, his roommate's not there yet. It doesn't seem like there's anybody on the floor. I wonder how that kid's doing. So he had said that if he got up early enough, he'd have breakfast with me before I bounced. I think he and I both knew that was a lie. But when I called him early yesterday and said, how you living? What did you do after you left us? He said he met some guys. He went out for a while. I said, dude, I can barely hear you, man. What are you doing right now? He said, I'm in the gym. So that made me feel much better. The kid jumps out of bed first thing in the morning, goes right to the gym. Good move. Because once everybody does get there, there's no way that kid will be able to outwork or outlift the party. I've seen that town. Even with his metabolism, it'll be bulk season all over again, but the wrong kind of bulk for the wrong reason. Oh, and he found a pickleball court. So that was another good sign. I'm going to take a time out because I want to make sure that I'm ready for Tom Glavin. I do want to hit you up with whether or not I dusted up, teared up, or walked off and kind of manned it up like, hey, no emotion. Can't show any motion. Can't show the kitty motion. Gotta let him know how it is. I'll let you know how that is. But anyway, the town is incredible. The campus is beautiful. I try to find Coach Prime. I was not successful in that regard. Like, he's everywhere. Everywhere in town. Everywhere on campus, so to speak. But just not physically. But his presence is everywhere. You can feel it. I tried to get on the field, but everything, all the gates were locked. All right, more on all of that coming up. I want to talk about that urban liar doc that's out right now. Tom Glavin coming up next segment. And I'll finish my thoughts on the Boulder weekend. I just hit the kid up just now. I don't want to be that dad who's like, hey, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call you all the time. Because I rarely call Jake. But they're two different animals altogether. So I'm like, how you living, kid? I can tell. A little bit of apprehension. He's doing well, but a little bit of apprehension. I'm like, Logs, you and the other 40,000 there, man. You're good. You're awesome. You're going to be incredible. It's a Rocky Mountain Medellin. Yo, be careful. Be smart. Make good choices. We are joined right now by Tom Glavin. Tom, it's been a minute, or actually more than that. It is good to have you back, Tom. How are you? 
It has been a minute. I'm good. How you doing? Good, Tom. Good. Great to have you on. So why don't I start with the obvious, get this out of the way since you'll be in the booth tonight and you'll be there. I know lots of fans are asking, hey, Tom, what about this Braves team? How does this edition of the Braves, who've got the best record in baseball, compare to the great Atlanta teams that you were a part of? Um, I don't know that it does, to be honest with you. I mean, uh, it's just a different makeup, um, you know. So many of those teams I played on, um, everything was re- revolved around pitching and defense. And, you know, it's not to say we didn't have good offensive clubs. We did. Um, but I don't know that we had any that any any lineups were, that were this good or this deep, right? I mean, you know, we certainly had a, a few of them that were really deep, probably one through six or one through five. But. You know, I don't know if any of them were as deep as this team is one through nine. I mean, they virtually every guy in the lineup can take the ball out of the ballpark. They can hurt you. Um, and it's just a really tough team uh, for opposing pitchers to try to navigate because there's just nowhere to go to get out. We're talking to Tom Glavin. It's such a good point. And you mentioned your pitching. Tom, when you think back to those days, obviously you'll be with John Smoltz tonight. He was an incredible pitcher, great, great competitor. And then, of course, you had Greg Maddox, who was an integral part of those great, brave staffs. And frankly, Tom, a source of great fascination to, well, me. Maddox, man. Maddox really (laughs) was one of one. What is your favorite Greg Maddox story that you can share that is suitable for daytime radio and television? Um, well, there are a few, you know, and I, and as time has gone on, Greg swears that a lot of these things didn't happen, but, um, you know, one of my favorite ones was, um, you know, we had, uh, back in those days, we didn't have all the analytics that there are today. So, um, you know, when you were pitching, if you were pitching the next day, you kept the pitching chart. So, you know, we kept score, uh, wrote down every pitch that was thrown and then the pitching coach would enter that information and, and do all that. So I remember there was a game that I went upstairs that Greg was charting and about the third inning. And there was a lot of bickering on both sides with the home plate umpire. So I went upstairs and I asked Greg, I said, hey, how's this umpire? I said, you know, everybody's kind of complaining down there. He's, he, you know, he hasn't been bad. You know, he's kind of given a couple, taken a couple on both sides, but he hasn't been bad. So shortly after that, Bobby came up and asked him the same question. And he told Bobby that he said, Bobby, this guy's terrible. He's missed so many pitches. He's missed a bunch on our side, more than he has on their side, and just went on and on. And, and Bobby walked out, and I was like, Greg, what are you doing? He said, what? I said, well, you know he's going to go downstairs and he's going to get thrown out of the game now because you told him the home plate umpire is terrible and he's squeezing our guy more than the other guy. And he said, oh, I know. So sure enough, next half inning, Bobby went downstairs and there was a close call and started arguing with the umpire and he got thrown out of the game. So that was that. That is funny. I, I tend to believe all these things that become so legendary and they seem like they're urban myths. I believe all of them, whether they're true or not. I just want to believe them about him. Like, Tom, I can't remember. Like, it's been so long. It was either you or John Smoltz. But I remember I did this interview with Maddox and one of the two of you when I worked for Fox back in the day. And I remember thinking, I can't believe Maddox is doing this. Maddox never does stuff like this. He never does these interviews. But I think that he was only doing it because either you or Smoltz, he was doing it but he made it really clear Tommy's like I have seven minutes and I mean seven not eight not nine but seven so I prepped this thing so hard and I'm doing this interview and I'm going back and forth between the two of you and I ask him this really long thoughtful question 
And then it was either you or Smoltz who said, hey, Jim, I'll handle that. Greg left. Dude, he left because the seven <laughs> minutes were up in the middle of a live interview on TV. Does that sound about right? That sounds about right. I mean, I don't remember, so maybe it wasn't me. But, yeah, that kind of sounds about right. I mean, look, Greg, you know, Greg was, um, you know, he was a little quirky sometimes. But, you know, at the end of the day, super guy, uh, really intelligent about pitching. Um, but yeah, I think he was, he was one of those guys that, uh, he didn't love doing media stuff. Uh, he just kind of liked to be left alone and pitch and talk about pitching after he pitched. Uh, but leading up to it, he didn't really want to have much to do with it. So, uh, that, that sounds like him. Yeah. Don't get it twisted. I love the guy. I love everything about the guy. And I appreciate your, t- your story about him. Tom Glavin joining us. Hey, Tom, I wonder, remember when Steve Avery came up, man? God, he was a phenom. He was an absolute phenom. Also a source of fascination. Do you still check on him or talk to him and catch up with him? When's the last time you spoke to him? Yeah. He's one of the guys that I kind of do keep in touch with, um, you know, after our playing days. As a matter of fact, I just saw him last weekend. We had alumni weekend in Atlanta last weekend, and I don't know, I had about 50 guys come back, and he was one of them, so I got to catch up with him a little bit. And, um, yeah, I mean, Dave was a great dude. Um, you know, that that year he had in 1991 as a 21-year-old and that playoff he had uh, against Pittsburgh in the NLCS was just unbelievable. I think it was there that Andy Vance, like, uh, termed him Poison Avery, so – um, that was, that was fitting. I mean, he's, you know, it's unfortunate that, uh, he had some injuries that derailed him a little bit, but, um, he had a ton of talent, certainly was a huge part of our rotation and, and another guy that, uh, was fun to be around and liked to play golf. So he fit in perfectly with our, with our pitching rotation. And yeah, no doubt, man, he was filthy. He was so, so dirty. Andy Van Slyke, it was a blast from the past. I don't want to age you and I both, but man, <laughs> that, that was another great one, man. How awesome was Van Slyke, both on the field with a bat in his hand, and man, he could turn a phrase. He was a great guy to talk to. He could. He was a good player. I mean, he, I think he was a little bit underrated at times. You know, he was one of those guys that, um, you know, I think you had to watch. Uh, a little bit more to appreciate him, but uh, he could play, you know, he could play, he could play outfield, he could hit, he was a timely hitter and kind of guy that you knew when he got in the batter's box, he was going to give you a battle. Hey, Tom, before I ask you about tonight's broadcast, let me ask you one more thing. We were talking about Bobby Cox. You know, baseball's always had that code or its set of unwritten rules, and I've always been of the opinion, Tom, that unless you play the game at the highest level, there's no way you could ever know what those rules actually were. How much of the rules or the code changed since you played? I mean, it's changed a lot. You can see it, right? I mean, um, you know, that whole phrase, let the kids play, uh, that's kind of what baseball is now. You know, you see, uh, you know, bat flips. You see uh, very exaggerated home run trots. uh, You know, all those things in the game. You see guys, um, you know, back when I played, you basically wore your uniform and you wore one of your team colors was your your cleats. So they were either, either, you know, black or blue or, or something, your primary color. You know, nowadays you look out on the field and guys have, you know, neon orange or neon yellow cleats or whatever. So it's, you know, it's a lot more um, colorful, so to speak. And, and, you know, look, I'm not, I'm not saying it's good or it's bad. I mean, I think initially my concern was, you know, that it, it was going to be hard to, to draw the line, so to speak. Um, you know, how, how much was too much of a home run celebration? How much was too much of a, of a strikeout celebration, but, you know, it doesn't seem to have been a problem. Um, I think these guys have um, embraced it. They're okay with it. And it's, and it's, you know, I'm not saying it's good or bad. It's just different from when I played, but um, 
you know, these guys seem to like it and the fans seem to like it. Tom Glavin joining us. All right, as I mentioned, you're going to be in a booth for the Bally Sports South Broadcasting, a team up with Chipper and John Smoltz, Jeff Francourt. Now, y'all did this, Tom, about 11 weeks ago to rave reviews. What was it like for you to get part of the band back together and chop it up for a live broadcast? You know, it was a lot of fun, but I'm not going to lie. It was a little bit stressful, right? I mean, because I think for all of us, um, you know, when we get back together, you know, that's one of the great elements of, of being teammates with these guys for so long. And, you know, I only played with Frank Corr for a minute, but uh, I've been broadcasting with him for a number of years now. And, look, he, he's a great dude. He fits right in with all of us. And, um, you know, but it's, it's that I, I feel fortunate that, with these guys, it's the kind of relationship that even if I haven't seen them for a while, it's like when we get back together, it's like we saw each other yesterday and we're back in the locker room and you're talking smack and you're telling stories and you're having a great time. And, you know, I think for me personally, my biggest concern was, you know, when you get around those guys and you start talking shop a little bit, you know, there's a real good chance a cuss word is going to slip out somewhere because that's generally the nature of, of the conversation. So, that was my biggest thing is I didn't want to say something on air that I, that I was going to get in trouble for. But um, I think that, you know, I, I, I think for the most part, people really liked it. I mean, look, it's different, right? I mean, there wasn't a whole lot of play-by-play going on. Um, and I think that was by design. You know, when they asked us if we would be willing to do this, we, you know, and we all said yes. I think their vision was they wanted it to be conversational. They wanted it to be like we were in a bar with people watching the game with us. And, you know, that, that's kind of what we tried to do. And I think it came across that way. And we had some fun, um, you know, a lot of storytelling, a lot of ragging on each other and things like that. But I think, you know, all in all, I think people really enjoyed it. I'm not sure it's the kind of broadcast you'd want to watch every night. Um, but I think it was fun for people, and I think tonight it'll be fun and, you know, maybe a little bit more parameters and a little bit more guidelines, uh, but I think it'll still be a lot of um, smack-talking and storytelling, too. I think, I think you nailed it. I think you nailed it. I think that's what, exactly what that is. It's different, and people want to get that different vibe. I think, to your point, that you were a little stressed and a little concerned that you might drop a four-letter bomb or something like that, that's understandable. I always say this because, especially if you move from platform to platform, like, Tom, there are things that I can say on this show or there are things I could say on a podcast or another thing that I do that I would never say on this show. It just doesn't work. Or things that I would say on a podcast that I would never tweet or like you have to know your room, but I could see where you get together with the guys and all of a sudden it feels like you're in the clubhouse, but you're not. You're, you're on air and you don't want to get too comfortable. I would just ask this, like y'all have takes, y'all have strong personalities, y'all have something to say. How do you divvy up all the airtime? You know, that's a good question. And, and I think that was a little bit of a concern too, but I, but I think that's where, you know, that's a much harder dynamic if you're in a traditional broadcast, right? Because, you know, when you're in a traditional broadcast, you know, the, the rule of thumb is you're not, or at least trying not to talk over the action, right? So if you've got an opinion or you've got something to say, when you've got, when it's just you as a color analyst and your, and your play-by-play guy, that's fairly easy. When you start to have a two-man booth or a three-man booth with two analysts, that's a little tougher because you got to defer to one another, especially now with the pitch clock, to talk about what it is you want to say, and then the pitch comes and, and there's action and you don't want to be talking over it. I think in this format it worked because we weren't concerned about talking over the action. I think people knew that's what it was going to be. So if there was some bantering going on or there was some conversation based around something, 
we weren't worried about the parameters of the play that was going on on the field. We just talked. We finished our stories. You know, we would interject it. Oh, by the way, fly ball left field for second out of the inning, whatever. Um, so I think it's a little bit easier when you don't have uh, that parameter of not trying to talk over the action. Right. Um, but again, I think that's where, you know, it'd be, it'd be tough to do that in a traditional broadcast where, you know, like I said, especially with the pitch clock now, you better get your thoughts in and get them in quickly before the next pitch comes. I like it. He's a Hall of Famer. Tom Glavin, my guest. That should be a lot of fun. Chipper Jones, John Smoltz, Jeff Rancor. That's the Bally Sports South broadcast between the Mets and the Braves tonight. Pre-game coverage getting underway at 6.30 p.m. Eastern. Tom, great to get caught up. Have a great time with that, and it's really nice to have you back on. Thanks so much. It was great talking to you, Jim. Have a good day. You too. Tom Glavin. All right, see, so every telephone number. Let me move on to something else. There were two things that were trending on the X this morning. I do not think they're related, but they might be. First one was Happy Hump. The second hump one, day. Urban Meyer. Three things were trending, and two of them were Happy Hump and Urban Meyer. I don't know. Are they related? I'm not really sure. But I will say this, Happy Hump Day, perv. Big hump day for you. And, I mean, I know every single hump day is a big day for Perv and Liar, but this is Perv's biggest hump day in a long time because Perv's big new docuseries just dropped on Netflix. Swamp Kings is out. And Perv is trending because he is basically the star of the entire program. A show that seems to exist to just tell the story of how great Perv was. Not exactly the doc that people want to see about the mid-2000s Florida Gators. People were thinking and excited about this and hyped on this because they thought they were going to get this crazy, salacious, chaotic look about how out of control this amazing football program really was. That's the doc people were expecting. That's the doc people wanted. That's the doc that I was all about. Like, I was going to watch that. Well, I am watching it, to be honest. That's how I know that's not what I'm getting. What I'm saying is that's what I wanted. But you don't always get what you want, right? That would have been amazing. Hey, and by the way, you know what that would have been? True. True. I'd even watch the doc about Herb perving and lying his way out of the NFL in just 13 weeks. In fact, that'd be the best doc ever made, if made properly. That would be appointment viewing. This is not what that is. This is like raw, raw, Herb came to Gainesville and saved the Gators, starring Perv himself. Nobody really wants to see that, at least outside of Gainesville. And people are now freaking out, thinking that what this is is a giant image rehab that Perv does not deserve. Like somehow people are going to see this doc and forget that he's actually one of the biggest bags ever. And the single worst NFL coach ever. Like, people are fearful, like, oh no, people are going to forget that he couldn't even make it through one NFL season. People are going to forget what a bag this guy is. No, they're not. No, they will not. People have short memories, but there are some things you never forget. This guy, for one. I've got good news for you. It's not going to matter. No matter how many positive documentaries they make, nobody will ever think of this guy as anything other than one of the biggest Delta Bravos ever. 
And honestly, the doc doesn't even hide that bagginess. It doesn't. Like, check out this clip. Check out this clip from the first episode, which pretty much sums this dude up in only 20 seconds. Earl is here. I'm going to treat my superstars like superstars. And I'm going to treat my like If I treat you like and you want me to change, then you find a way to make yourself into a superstar and I'll start treating you like that. To me, I was like, oh, that is so profound. Every coach does it, but no coach says it. I don't know, dude. Couple things. Number one, that's not profound at all. Number two, not every coach does it. That's not profound. You know what that is? That's just saying the quiet part out loud. Like every D-bag coach thinks and acts that way. But Perv was the only bag baggy enough to actually say it out loud and be proud of it. So profound. That's not profound. The other thing the doc spells out pretty clearly is that Perv would have never been Perv had he not landed Tim Tebow. That he would have never had the success that he had there. Also true. So essentially, while trying to tell a story about how much of a hero Herb is, the doc actually tells the story of how gigantic a bag he was and how lucky he was to get that guy at that time. So it's really not all that much of an image rehab at all. Look, I can't take away his college wins. I can't. I can't say that he didn't win like crazy in college. He did. He won like nobody ever won in college, which is why I suspect that one day some pathetic school is going to make a pathetic offer to this pathetic dude, and he'll suddenly be on the college sidelines winning games again. Here's what else I know. Ken Burns could do a 1,000-part doc on Perv, and he'll still never get another NFL shot. Anyone can make any kind of propaganda they want. It's still not going to change the fact that he's the worst coach in the history of the NFL. They can make 100 more docs about what a hero this guy is, and it still won't ever make people forget that he was 2-11 and 11 in Duval or how he kicked his kicker. Kicked his kicker. Because, you know, He's the damn ball coach, and he'll kick his kicker whenever the hell he pleases. I'm the ball coach. I'll kick you whenever I want. Like, here, here, Josh Lambeau. Let me set you up on a tee right there, and I'm going to blast you right through the uprights. I'm the ball coach. I'll kick you whenever I want. Great take, dude. Especially to an NFLer. A grown-ass man. Not, not somebody whose scholarship that you can dangle and hang over their head and rip from them but a professional baller earning a professional paycheck. Or how about that time he abandoned his team to throw on an Ohio State pullover and chase tail at the chop house back in CBUS instead of flying home to Jacksonville. Remember that? Get out of Dodge. You can make a million documentaries hyping this guy up and nobody's ever going to forget that. Or the time he didn't know who Aaron Donald was. Or the other time he said that the NFL is like playing Alabama every week. Or the time he berated his own assistants for being losers who never won anything like he did. Even though he was the one who hired them. 
or how the Jags went right to the playoffs and won a playoff game the very year after Perv crashed and burned. So no, you don't need to worry about Perv's image being rehabbed by this doc. It's a documentary that basically talks about what a lucky bag he was. They can make documentaries, and they can pump out propaganda, and they can even get this guy another college job, but none of it will ever change his status as one of the all-time bags. And the reason for that is everybody already knows this dude is an all-time bag. We can't take your college wins from you, but we know who you really are, dude. The dude who treats his superstars like superstars and his bleep like bleep. And if they don't want to be bleep or treated like bleep, they have to figure out a way to be a star. So profound. Is that how you coach guys up? You tell them you're a piece of bleep and I'm going to treat you like bleep until you figure out how to be a star? Is that how you coach dudes up? Wow. So profound. So profound. He actually comes off great in the dock. Except right there. Good night now!